Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 139, Two Perspectives on the Doctrine of the Trinity in the Early Church. Professor Mark Edwards is a very accomplished scholar at Christ Church, University of Oxford, where he's professor of early Christian studies. He counts as his interests the New Testament, the 19th century, philosophy of religion, and intellectual biography. And he's published a number of books, articles, and edited collections, particularly having to do with Platonism and how it relates to early mainstream Christianity. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him. I would love to have him on the podcast sometime and dialogue with him about all sorts of things. I particularly enjoyed his fairly recent book, Catholicity and Heresy in the Early Church. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I just wanted to interact with a very interesting video blog, which was posted recently by the Oxford Theology Society. Thanks to Dr. Scott Williams, one of the bloggers at Trinity's, for letting me know about this. In this video, Professor Edwards just answers some simple questions that are put to him. I'm going to play for you his answers to the first three questions, and then react to it and give you my perspective with the result that you will get two somewhat different perspectives on the Trinity in the early church. The first question he's asked is, is the doctrine of the Trinity articulated in the New Testament? Here's his answer. Well, what we do find in the New Testament is a baptismal formula at the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus tells his disciples to baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So although there is no explicit statement there that God is a trinity, or that that there is a trinity, clearly those three names must mean something. They're set apart from the creation. The Son and the Holy Spirit are named alongside the Father. And then at the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, there's a famous blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you evermore. So again, two names, this time of Christ and the Spirit, are associated with the name of God. So we have these triadic formulae, which probably form part of the church's liturgy from very early times. And furthermore, it does appear that Jesus Christ is an object of worship. He's called Lord in many parts of the New Testament. He's clearly not the same person as the Father, who is also an object of worship. And yet the New Testament continues to assert that there's only one God. So we have this paradox that there are two objects of worship, at least, but yet still a strong commitment to monotheism. And I think it's out of this paradox, combined with the habit of baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that the doctrine of the Trinity emerges. I take it then that his answer is no, that the doctrine of the Trinity is not articulated in the New Testament However, there are materials there which were later pressed into service as supporting the doctrine as it eventually developed. There are actually three ways in which this question is a bad question. One way it's bad is it assumes that there is one doctrine of the Trinity. In my view, there's one form of words which has become standardized since the late 300s, but I don't think there's ever been one doctrine. If a doctrine is a set of claims, each of which could be true or false, 
it turns out people are understanding these formulae in somewhat different ways. And so in that sense, there are different doctrines of the Trinity, each purporting to be the right way to understand these required words. So I don't like the question. I think it has a false presupposition that there is a single doctrine of the Trinity in mainstream Christian tradition. Is it articulated in the New Testament? Well, what does articulated mean? It could mean explicitly taught. I think Professor Edwards and I agree that no, it's not explicitly taught. It could mean implicitly taught. In other words, that it's implied by what is taught. I don't think he's saying that, but I'm not entirely sure. This is how evangelical apologists argue about it. They say, no, look, it's just obviously implied. Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God. There's only one God, so they must be the same God. There you go. They're all divine, one divine nature, three persons, Trinity. I don't think that's right. More careful scholars realize that if you could just simply deduce it from what's taught in the New Testament, there wouldn't have been hundreds of years of sometimes pretty vicious squabbling about it. What theologians will nowadays say very often is that the Trinity is rooted in the New Testament. I have to confess, I don't think that's a helpful metaphor. I think that metaphor splits right down the middle between two different ideas. What is it to be rooted in the New Testament? Is that to say that the roots of the doctrine are in the New Testament? In which case, it really is just working out the implications of what's there. Or is the point that the New Testament is like the soil, and then seeds were planted in the soil and took root in it, so the Trinity's rooted in the New Testament? Well, the metaphor doesn't tell you. It splits the difference there. If the New Testament writings themselves constitute the root of the doctrine, then it just organically grows out of it. It's all of one piece. If the New Testament provides the soil, then it has something to do with the doctrine, but the doctrine is not really derived out of it. What everyone knows is that people who believe various Trinity theories appeal to the New Testament and to the whole Bible for support. But the question is, are they rightly appealed to or not? Is this eisegesis occurring, reading ideas into the text, or is it true exegesis getting contents out of the text? I just think the metaphor hides the real issue. It's a way of sticking the issue under the carpet. I'm not saying that Professor Edwards is doing that. I'm just on a general rant here. So let's get back on track. What if the Trinity is not explicitly taught in the Bible? And what if it's not implicitly taught either? What if it's not implied by what's said there? Still, there's another way in which the doctrine could be properly grounded in the text. It's a way I think a lot of people overlook. This is the view that the Trinity, however one understands that doctrine, isn't in the scripture, but it best explains what is and is not there. Perhaps that's the view that Professor Edwards intends. So if that's right, it's not implied by the New Testament, nor taught by the New Testament. In a real sense, it's not part of the content that's there. It's not something that entered their minds or entered into the minds of the readers. However, maybe only this theory can explain what's there. Then I say, fine, whatever you think the Trinity means, let's line that up against other things that people think the Trinity means and against non-Trinitarian Christian understandings of the New Testament, and let's see which one's best. If the New Testament is really the authority, then this seems like how you should go about it. 
he cites the doctrine as arising in some sense from the triadic formulas in the New Testament. I discussed these back in episodes 107 and 108 with our friend, evangelical apologist Dr. Robert M. Bowman Jr. He too sees the Trinity as somehow related to these triadic texts. I'm not so sure. Professor Edwards says that there are two names here closely associated with the name of God. But is the phrase, the Holy Spirit, really a name? I don't think it's a proper name. I think it's a way of referring to God's Spirit. And so, there is clearly an association there. That's absolutely right. And that's kind of striking, for sure. So we have to ask, why are these three things being grouped together? God, the Messiah, and God's Spirit. My own suggestion is that this was a popular unity formula in the New Testament era. It's not the only unity formula, but it's one popular one. One God, one Lord, and one Spirit that's common to all believers. And in an era when there was no institutional unity to speak of, I think this was part of the apostolic preaching as a way to draw them together and make Christians from different groups founded by different apostles view each other as part of a common body. Professor Edwards suggests that instead, the author's purpose here, whether we're talking about the author of Matthew or about Paul, he suggests that the author's purpose is to group these three together, Father, Son, and Spirit, in distinction from creation. It's often said that all three are on the creator side of the creature-creator distinction. Of course, we know this was a big point of interest in the 4th century, before and after the Council at Nicaea in 325. I would like to know, though, is there any 1st century reason that can be brought into play here? What reason is there for thinking that Paul would be making that point, or that the author of Matthew would be making that point? If we don't have some specific reason, then I'm worried that we're reading later interests back into earlier texts. I was intrigued by Professor Edwards' point about a paradox regarding worship in the New Testament. The paradox is supposed to be that there are two objects of worship in the New Testament. That is absolutely right. That's a very important point, actually. And yet, in the New Testament, there's only one God. Also a very important point. And this isn't something that's hinted at. This is explicitly asserted numerous times and everywhere presupposed that there's only one God. But then, how can you have one God and two objects of worship? Well, what do you mean by monotheism? You might mean by the term monotheism that there's exactly one God. Or you might mean this by monotheism, there's exactly one God, and that is the only one who we are to worship. I would call the existence claim monotheism, and the second claim monolatry, that there's only one who should be worshipped, only one proper object of worship. Now, I know some people define monotheism as including monolatry. Admittedly, that is a central point within Judaism and within Islam. And doesn't the Old Testament say, only worship Yahweh? In my view, and I've explained this more fully in my presentation called, Who Should Christians Worship? The New Testament attitude 
towards this is, yes, God did say that. That's part of the law of Moses, but we're not under the law of Moses. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. We don't keep all the holiness rules. And there is another that we should worship, but it's not a competitor to God like all these pagan deities. It's the exalted Son of God. If God holds his Son up as an object of worship, who are we to say, no, that would be idolatry? There's only one we should worship. You can't defy God just to uphold something you imagine is a self-evident principle. It's not a self-evident principle that there's only one who should be worshipped. If the one God wants his one Son to also be worshipped to the glory of God, well, then that's what we should do. And that's what you see in Philippians 2, Revelation 5, and other places in the New Testament. So, I don't see a paradox, but there is something for sure in the New Testament that would make people wonder, what's going on here? Why are they worshiping Jesus? Is it because they think Jesus is God himself? So, really, it's just one object of worship? Or are there really two objects of worship? Yeah, there really are two. In Philippians 2, Paul says that worship given to Jesus goes ultimately to the glory of the Father. So, then there are two distinct objects of worship, one which is worship directly and one indirectly. So, I wouldn't quite say it's a paradox, but I would say it's a difficulty for anybody who's coming to the New Testament, particularly from a Jewish background. The third way in which this question is, I think, a bad question, a poorly formed question, is it's not clear if the question concerns the small t trinity or the big t trinity. And I've talked about this on a couple of blog posts before, and I'll link those on the blog post for this episode. The thing about the term trinity is that when it's first introduced in the second century, it's a plural referring term. It doesn't have just one referent, it has three. It refers to God, God's Son, and God's Spirit. Whether those are the same being, whether those are the same God, whether those are three gods, whether those are a primary God, a highest God, and two lesser gods, it's just neutral about how these three are related or quite what they are. It's just a way of referring to them. It's a triad. And I realized in part that this was going on because of work by recent philosophers and in part because of some translators of people like Tertullian who sometimes would use the word Trinity with a small t. The big T Trinity is the triune God of real Trinitarian theology where there's one God in three persons, one usia, three hypostases. Big T Trinity is a singular referring term. It refers to the one God, to the triune God, the tripersonal God. So when we ask, is the doctrine of the Trinity articulated in the New Testament, if we're talking about the big T Trinity, the answer has to be no. There isn't any single term anywhere in the New Testament that was understood to refer to the tripersonal God, or to the Father, Son, and Spirit understood as persons within God. If we mean the small t Trinity, is there a doctrine of God, His Son, and His Spirit in the New Testament? Well, yeah, I think so. I think there's a fairly unified doctrine there a matter of dispute what that doctrine is. When we're talking about the small t trinity, we can say that any Unitarian believes in the trinity. You see early modern Unitarians like Clark and Biddle writing books with the word trinity in the title. And they said, well, we want to give you the right teaching about the trinity. They meant the small t trinity, God, his son, and his spirit. A different way to put the distinction is the small t trinity is a triad, and God is the basic or founding member of it in some sense. And the big T trinity, God is the whole thing. God is the three of them. 
but I think in his answer, Professor Edwards sensibly focuses on the big T trinity. As you can tell, Professor Edwards is better at giving concise, non-long-winded answers than I am. So back to him. Second question is, in what ways did the early church understand the metaphysics of the Trinity? The Greek world in particular took quite a long time to come up with a way of explaining what the unity of the Father and Son really consisted in. They spoke of three hypostases, the Father, Son and Spirit, before they spoke of one ousia, which is a Greek word meaning being, and it can mean being in all kinds of ways. But what the word ousia came to mean in Greek Trinitarian teaching was that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have the same essence in the sense that they have the same attributes. So if one of them is omniscient and omnipotent and omnibenevolent, then all of them are omniscient and omnipotent and omnibenevolent and perfectly wise and perfectly good and perfectly just, etc. So although they're not exactly the same object of worship, not the same subject, they all have the same attributes. And that was expressed in Greek by the term ousia. But only really after the Nicene Council of 325, which introduced the word homoousios into the creed, meaning having the same ousia. And the Latin world, the assertion that they have the same substance, the same substantia, had been made earlier by Tertullian. And substantia, effectively, is the Latin equivalent for the Greek word ousia. I think also, certainly in Tertullian's writing on substantia, unity of origin is very important. You know, the fact that the Son and the Holy Spirit both come from the Father is essential to the unity of the Trinity. So it's not just, they're not just three distinct beings who happen to have the same attributes. They're not just three members of one species. They are united by the fact that the Son and the Spirit owe their existence to the Father. And this is something which was also always present in the Greek use of the word homoousios, when they said that the Son or the Spirit were of the same ousia as a father. They always qualified this by saying the reason why they have the same ousia as a father is because they come from the Father. It's not just a unity of species, it's a unity of origin as well. Perfectly good answer. I would just add a few points. Early on, when some of the leading fathers like Origen talked about the Father and Son as different apostases, that actually meant different beings. At that time, it didn't have this meaning of different persons within one essence. And when someone like Origen or Tertullian says that the Father and Son have the same ousia, or the same essence, the same divinity, the same substantia in Latin, they mean by that that the Son is divine, although he's only divine because of the Father, Origen, as a Platonist, would say that the Father is divinity itself and the Son just participates in divinity to the highest degree, but so do other things below the Son. They have divinity in a lesser degree yet. When Tertullian talks about the Father and Son as having the same substantia, that sounds really exciting from the perspective of fully developed 4th century Trinitarianism, but we have to keep in mind what Tertullian means by that. He means that they share a common material stuff, that the Father has taken a portion of his own stuff and brought into existence the Son, having a portion of his substance also composed the Son while still composing himself. And this not eternally, but a finite time ago. 
And I think he's right. I think Origen and Tertullian and other early people, and then even post-Nicene era, especially in the East, take the view that Origen matters, that it matters not only that the Son and Spirit have the same usia as the Father, but that they get that from the Father. They have it because of the Father. I think that's right. It's also in tension with the later idea, which is emphasized in a lot of Western Trinitarianism, that the three in the Trinity are wholly equal. It's hard to see how they can be wholly equal if two of them exist because of the other. Back again to Professor Edwards. This time his question is, what motivated the early church to include the Son and the Spirit in the Godhead? Well, there seems to be a fairly general consensus in the worship of Christ. This seems to be what everybody understood the word Christian to mean. Now, worship in the early church can or in the, in the ancient world can take many different forms. I mean, you know, the word which is used to denote worship of God can also be used to denote the paying of honor to a human being. And it was not uncommon in the ancient world for people to prostrate themselves before those of higher rank. Um, eventually it became a, a duty to do so before the emperor. Just as we used to speak of aldermen and mayors as being worshipful, so one could worship Christ without thinking of Christ as being fully God. But in the Jewish world, at least, that was difficult. You know, to worship anything other than God would have seemed to many people in the Jewish tradition to be well, heretical or um, at least dangerous. So I think you know, there's a strong tendency, which we see even in the New Testament, to say that because Christ is worshipped, he must be divine. Possibly there are even passages in the New Testament where he's actually said to be so. So, for example, in the first verse of John's Gospel, we hear that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that may not mean that he was God in the fullest sense. There are questions about the exact translation of the Greek. But certainly the word God is used in connection with the Word, and that Word is the one who then became flesh and became Jesus Christ. Or... After the resurrection, the story of Doubting Thomas, the man who wouldn't believe that Christ was resurrected until he saw the marks of the nails, when he saw them, he said, My Lord and my God. And most people in the early church appear to have understood this to mean that he was calling Christ his Lord and his God at this point. Again, it can be differently interpreted, but that seems to have been the consensus that he was actually calling Christ God. So there's very strong New Testament evidence for saying that Christ is God. And it does appear that you know, the majority of Christians who we know anything about um, would have regarded him as divine and perhaps a little inferior to the Father. Some people use the term second God, but certainly much closer to the Father than he was to the created world. I'm going to jump in here Professor Edwards starts off with a really important point, which is that the terminology of worship in ancient times was more flexible. 
A lot of us nowadays, and I'm not sure why this is, I think it's just due to the influence of Catholic Christianity and maybe also of Islam indirectly, a lot of people just assume it's self-evident that only God should be worshipped. And so if anyone should be worshipped, it's because that person is the one God. As Professor Edwards points out, the Bible talks about worshipping kings. It just means honoring. It can be worship in the full religious sense. It can be just the kind of honor that you would give to a civic leader. And it can also be something in between. A good example of this is the three wise men, when they visit Jesus and they are there to worship him, do they think that he's God? Pretty clearly not. But what they believe is that he has been born to be a king, that that's his destiny. And so they're doing what Eastern people do to a king. They were bowing to him. Jesus, I think, is unequivocally worshipped in the New Testament. If you ask, is he worshipped as God? What do you mean by worshipped as God? Do you mean worshipped in the same ways that God is? Well, a lot of the same ways. They sing a hymn to him in Revelation 5. Arguably, they pray to him. That seems to be presupposed in the New Testament, calling on the name of the Lord. But I think a lot of times when people say worshiping Jesus as God, they mean worshiping Jesus, believing that he's God himself. This, I claim, you don't find in the New Testament. He's worshiped as the risen and exalted Lord, the one Lord who's in addition to the one God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. Or as Dr. Larry Hurtado has emphasized in his work, Jesus is always worshipped with a view towards how he's related to God, the service he's done to God, his being our Savior, sent by God, empowered by God, raised by God. It's all to the glory of God, the way the New Testament looks at it. Is Jesus God in the New Testament? I would have liked the answer better if Professor Edwards had pointed out the ambiguity of God terminology in New Testament times as well. Jesus himself points this out in John chapter 10. They accuse him of making himself God or making himself a God. And he points out that people in the Old Testament are called gods, people to whom the word of God came. Well, he's greater than those people because he's the Messiah. So what's the big deal if he is called son of God? So, he does acknowledge that humans can be referred to as gods, and yet he corrects them that what he's claiming to be is the Son of God, just like John's Gospel says in its punchline in chapter 20. Once you realize this point, then just because you see Jesus being called God in a small handful of passages, you're not going to jump to the conclusion that they think he's God himself, or that they think that he's divine in the same way that God is divine. You have to ask, well... What were they thinking when they called him God? We notice in several passages that they think that Jesus has a God. Well, presumably God himself does not have a God. Presumably any fully divine being doesn't have a God over him. And a particularly telling passage is in the first chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. A psalm is quoted there, and it's interpreted as calling Jesus God. And yet it also talks in the immediate context of him having a God. So they surely do sometimes use God terminology in a way where those terms can be applied to beings other than God. Indeed, beings who have a God, the God, over them. 
Is Jesus called God in John 1.1? Well, Professor Edwards is making the traditional and popular assumption that the logos there, the word, is personally identical to the man Jesus. Myself, I don't think that's right, but that's another discussion in another podcast. About Jesus being inferior to the Father, yes, various of the pre-Nicene Fathers say that Jesus is not omniscient, that he depends on God for his power. Justin Martyr and the other early Logos theologians think that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. You also see that in Tertullian, the Catholic champion of the early 200s. Origen thinks that he's always existed, and yet in his commentary on the Gospel of John, Origen strongly insists that the Father only is Hatheos, the God, the unique God, the God of monotheism, and Jesus is one of the many Theoi, although he's the highest among those who are called Theos, uh, but not Hatheos. So, Origen is identifying the one God with the Father alone, although he does have Jesus as divine and as having a divine essence, yet he has it to a lower degree. So much so that at one point in his career, Origen forbade praying to Jesus, although he seems to have changed his mind about that. Now, continuing his answer, Professor Edwards on the Holy Spirit. There's always a certain silence about or reticence about the Spirit until the 4th century. No one quite knows where the Holy Spirit fits in. Obviously, on the one hand, there is a baptismal formula, and there is this blessing at the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which names the Spirit along with the other two. But there isn't the kind of evidence in the New Testament itself for the distinct personality of the Spirit that you find in the case of the Father and the Son, and there isn't the same evidence of the Spirit being called God. It took more time for the Spirit to attain that divine rank in the eyes of Christians than it did for the Son to attain that rank. And in fact, even now, in what we call the Nicene Creed, not the Nicene Creed of 325, but the one that was amplified and proclaimed at the Council of Constantinople in 381, that's the one that we now recite in churches. And it doesn't actually say that the Spirit is God. It says that the Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life and that he's worshipped with the Father and the Son. But it seems that the church never actually produced a creedal formula which definitely said that the Spirit was God like the other two. Another rich answer from Professor Edwards. He's certainly right about this. The Spirit is generally a neglected subject in the early years, takes a distant third place to the first two, and many of them seem to think that he is the third greatest being, that you've got the one God, that's the Father Almighty, and then, as it were, closely related to him, perhaps eternally, you've got the Son, and then at a lower tier, you've got the Spirit. That seems to be the view of Origen, for instance. Along those lines, here is a quote from Origen's book on first principles. This is book one, chapter three. And this is a passage that was corrupted by the ridiculous translator Rufinus towards the end of the 300s when he translated the book into Latin. This is part of the recovered Greek. It says, The God and Father who holds the universe together is superior to every being that exists, for he imparts to each one from his own existence that which each one is. The Son, being less than the Father, is superior to rational creatures alone, for he is second to the Father. The Holy Spirit is still less and dwells within the saints alone, so that in this way the power of the Father is greater than that of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and that of the Son is more than that of the Holy Spirit, and in turn the power of the Holy Spirit exceeds that of every other holy being. So in this triad, Origen is saying there is a hierarchy of power. The Father is all-powerful, the Son is somewhat less powerful, and the Spirit is somewhat less powerful than the Son. But of course, they're all three more powerful than anything else in reality. Now, about his point that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit finds no kind of resolution until the 4th century, yes, and I think that might even be understating it a little bit. Listen to the words of the 5th Theological Oration, that is, Oration 31, by Gregory of Nazianzus. This is his oration on the Holy Spirit. This would have been a sermon given in Constantinople in the year 379. He mentions opponents to his views. Of course, he wants to say that the Holy Spirit, just like the Son, has the same usia as the Father, and so they all are equally divine, and basically all are within one God. But he mentions right in the second paragraph, opposition, from within the mainstream Christian camp. Quote, But what do you say, they ask, about the Holy Spirit? Where did you get this strange, unscriptural, quote, God you are bringing in? People are saying this isn't part of our tradition to say that the Holy Spirit is God. And they could add the point that you don't see the Holy Spirit being an object of worship in the New Testament. Nor do you clearly see the Holy Spirit as being a peer of the Father and Son. You see a clear personal relationship between Father and Son, but you don't see the Holy Spirit in that way. Admittedly, there are a few passages, a very few passages, where the Holy Spirit is talked about as if the Holy Spirit is an additional person, different than the Father and the Son. But that could be personification. A little bit later in the fifth section of that same sermon, Gregory of Nazianza says, quote, Amongst our own experts, some took the Holy Spirit as an active process, some as a creature, some as God. Others were agnostic on this point out of reverence, as they put it, for Scripture, which has given no clear revelation either way. On these grounds they offer him neither worship nor disrespect, they take up a sort of halfway, or should I say a thoroughly pitiful position about him, among those who take him as God, some keep their devotion to their own minds, others venture to express it with their lips as well. I understand that there are others besides even more expert at measuring out Godhead, these acknowledge, as we do, that it is three beings that are spiritually discerned, but they put a vast difference between them. One is infinite in substance and power, one is infinite in power but not in substance, and one is finite on both counts. These people copy, if in a slightly different form, those who use the names creator, co-worker, and minister, alleging that the rank inherent in the names coincides with the quality of the realities. So he's talking about the graded triad, which was mainstream in the time of Origen and Tertullian, where the one God is the Father, and he's the greatest being there could be. And there are two others who are very great, but the second one's greater than the third, and both are less great than the one God. And this is right on the eve of the Council of 381, which makes the Nicene view mandatory. And as Professor Edwards correctly points out, the writers of that creed stop short of saying the same things about the Spirit that they say about the Son. The way I look at it, they did mean to imply the same things. They were a little gun-shy. 
When they introduced the new terminology that father and son were homoousios, that led to about half a century of vicious fighting. And they were reticent to introduce new items into required Christian confession. They were reticent to introduce things which didn't really occur in any of the liturgies in use. So they held back. But in the view of the Nicene partisans of this late period, in the dispute, the Holy Spirit, too, was of that same status. And in this time, to say that the three were one usia was to say that they were the same God. Not so in the time of origin, but that's what you see in the fully developed Trinitarian theologies. What does Gregory of Nazianza say in this book? Well, there's a lot to it, but some of it can be summarized like this. In the end, he says that the Trinity is a mystery that can't be understood, and there's no good analogy for it. But why should people believe that the Holy Spirit has the same status as the Father? One answer is he just rather carelessly dumps out a whole chapter full of proof texts. That's in chapter 29. He's just like, see? He says, quote, The Godhead of the Holy Spirit can be proved thoroughly scriptural, at least to those not utterly dense or utterly alien to the Spirit. And then he just gives a big load of proof texts. Obviously, his theological opponents wouldn't have been impressed by that, and rightly so. What I think is really doing the work in him are some theological speculations, like he says in chapter 28, in part, quote, Were the Spirit not to be worshipped, how could he deify me through baptism? If he is not to be worshipped, why not adored? And if to be adored, how can he fail to be God? One links with the other a golden chain of salvation. When Gregory of Nazianzus wrote that, the days were short for uninhibited arguing. Pretty soon, Christians were simply going to be told what to say and what to think about these things. Happily, we've got a bit more freedom now, although it depends. This is one of many arguments in patristic times where we just have one side shouting its own view. It can come off as really impressive, but as a philosopher, I can't help but wonder what it would be like if we could hear both sides arguing. As the proverb says, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. We'll end things there for this episode. There are two more questions that Professor Edwards gets into. One is, what are the main heresies concerning the Trinity? And the last is, how do modern approaches to the Trinity differ from those of the early church? If you want to hear his answers to those in the second half of the video, you can find it on YouTube, or you can find it quickly by going to trinities.org and finding the blog page for episode 139. This week's thinking music has been the track Found Smoke by Pitex. At least I think that's how you pronounce it. The artist is called P-I-T-X. If you enjoyed this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, don't forget to share on social media like Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. If you have feedback, join our Facebook group or comment on the blog post at trinities.org. We have a lot of great episodes coming up. I've got interviews with really excellent authors. We've got more historical material, my own recent conference presentation, and other things. Also, we'd love it if we could get some more honest ratings and reviews at iTunes. If you want some instructions on how to do that, check out trinities.org slash blog slash review.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.